title of my message is why the Bible can be trusted. And so let's go to our, our theme verse in Second Timothy, chapter three, verse 16. You just want to encourage you may want to memorize this verse. Just a great verse. It says this, that all scripture, all scripture is God breathed and is useful. Pretty cool, right? So all scripture, that means everything that is in this book from cover to cover has been breathed by God, right? And then it says this, and it's useful. Now watch this now. It's, it's, it's useful for more than just propping up a bad leg on the table. It's useful for more than just having another ornament in your house. The Bible is useful In every area of your life, it's useful in your marriage, it's useful in your parenting, it's useful in your finances, it's useful in your job. Come on, how many of you could use a little help in your job? The Bible's useful in that area. So it says this, to continue with the verse, it says it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. There's two words in there I don't like, rebuking and correcting. Those aren't my favorite words. Can I just be real with you this morning? I'll skip the page if the Bible starts rebuking me. (laughs) Come on, don't don't get all religious on me this morning. But it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Watch this. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So you see, God has given us everything that we need to do the good works that he gives us the opportunities to do. And if we'll get up into this book and let this book change our life, then the Bible promises that we will be thoroughly, thoroughly equipped to do every good work, right? I was studying this message and I was reminded of a story uh, of back when I was in high school. When I was in high school, I was slim and trim and fit and full of muscles and lots of energy and all those things. You remember your high school days. And so I was, football season was over with, and I didn't know what to do with myself, so I went out for the basketball team, and after about two or three days of practice, coach looked at me and said, son, you're wasting your time, you're not going to play. I was like, okay, I'll go find something else to do. So I joined the wrestling team. We just got a wrestling team at Franklin High, and man, I was excited, and our coach was not actually in the the, uh, education system, he was an orthopedic surgeon. That wasn't a good thing. Because you see, he could take your leg and twist it to the point of just about to break and then not let it break. And I think he had this little torture thing on him and he used to just like put us through. It was bad. So I go out on a Wednesday. I start the, the wrestling team. I, I put my tights on. That'll mess your mind up for the rest of the day. And, and so and, and I go out for the wrestling team and I, I get involved. And we're running. And we're doing all these things. And this, this coach, he's got me in all these these locks and all this stuff. And I'm, I'm like, mercy, man, like give up, dude. What did I do? And, and so I had two days of practice and he said, listen, we're going to a tournament this weekend at Jesuit. He said, I'd love for you to come and just get some experience. Be careful when people say you just come get some experience. You need to put up some caution flags. I said, okay, sounds great. I'll just come watch. That's what I thought I was going to do. So I told my mom, I got all scheduled to go, went left, got to the tournament. Coach said, look, I signed you up to wrestle. I'm like, Coach, I had two days of practice. He said, that's okay. It'd be good experience. I said, okay. So I'm going to look like a fool in front of everybody. Now, I, back in those days, I was a slim 195. And the, the heavyweight division went from 195 all the way up to 275. That's what I said. So I'm at the bottom, and I'm thinking, dang, man, I'm used to being the biggest guy. 
So he signs me up, man, and it's, they call my name. i got to go out on this mat, and there's like, I don't know, maybe 10 mats in the middle of this big old gymnasium. And first thing, I'm embarrassed because I'm wearing these tights. And I'm on the middle of this mat, and you had to go put these ankle bracelets on. Like you had to wear a green one or a red one, and then the ref would have the green or the red to give you points. And so I'm in the middle of the mat, and I'm looking at coach, and I'm kind of going, man, this is messed up. And so I'm putting my, my, my ankle bracelet on, and I feel somebody walking out into the mat. And this dude walks up to me. And so I kind of look up and I start doing like this. It's like he didn't end. It was a big old brother from Bruley High School. Okay, that, that sounds bad in itself. Big brother from Bruley High School. You follow me? This dude was big. I look up at him and, and he's growling at me. I'm not kidding you. He's standing over me. He's like, <laughs> he's doing that. And I'm going, I look at coach, I'm like, he goes, good luck. I'm like, man, where's my mama? So, man, we go at it, and and I'm like, I'm going to die. And I beat the guy. I'm going to have to tell you how I beat the guy, though. He came charging at me, growling. And I acted like a little girl and got the fetal position on the ground. He tripped over me. I jumped up, laid on top of him, and the ref went, boom. And I was like, I won. And coach was like, he won. Come to find out, this guy weighed 274 and a half pounds. He had to cut weight to get into the heavy class. Afterwards, he met me in the locker room, and he was like, how you beat me? I was like, look, bro, I don't know, man. It's like my third day of practice, you know. I wasn't thoroughly equipped. You with me? I had a great experience and I learned a whole lot. (laughs) But I wasn't thoroughly equipped. You see, the Bible will thoroughly equip you for every good work. And I believe that most Christians miss the good work opportunities in front of us because we don't feel like we're equipped. Come on. We don't feel like we're equipped. We don't feel like we're ready for a good work. And so today I want to help you with that. I want to give you some tools and that's what this series is all about to help you get thoroughly equipped. And my goal for this series is that we would love God's word. We would live God's word. We would learn God's word, but also that we would discover the power of God's word to discover the power, to discover its power, because you got to understand something. This book like we read in first and second Timothy is the breath of God. It's the same breath that created the universe in Genesis. It's the same breath that when God took dust and he formed a human, that he breathed life into that human. It's the same breath right now. It's the same breath. Amen. This isn't just paper and pencil and and, and ink. This is the breath of God. And so we need to learn it and love it and live it and then learn the power of it. It still has power to create today, right? Matthew 24, 35 says this, that heaven and earth, it will disappear. But my words will never disappear. That's good stuff right there. Everything else around this book will eventually disappear or change or shift or turn into something different. But his word will remain the same all the way through. 
That's good truth right there. So today I'm going to give you a little bit of apologetics. What is apologetics? It's basically just the, 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 the that's all folks. Uh, sometimes my tongue gets twisted. It's just the defending of the Bible. It's simply what apologetics is. I'm not a great apologist. I don't, I'm not a great theologian. I, I read theologians. I, that's not my strong suit. I'm in the people and, and I'm into God's word and I can debate the Bible with a lot of people. But when I get around a doctor or a theologian, I, I shut up. <laughs> Come on, you know, that's wisdom, right? And so today I'm going to give you a little bit of apologetics. So it's going to be a little bit of a different message for me today. But I want you to hang into this thing because I believe you got something in here. That, that, that you can take with you. So let me give you seven reasons why the Bible can be trusted this morning. Seven reasons why the Bible can be trusted. Number one, it's historically accurate. It's not just good principles. It's actually true. Psalms 33, 4 says that the word of the Lord is right and true. So how do we know that? How do we know that the Bible is right and true? Well, in order for something to be historically accurate, it has to go through three tests. I'm sorry, three tests. <laughs> and it has to go through those three, three tests to be proven historically accurate. The first test is an eyewitness account. Well, we know that over 40 different people wrote the Bible and they, most of them were eyewitnesses. They were actually there when the Bible was being lived out and when things were happening and they were eyewitness accounts. So we know that's true. So we passed the first test. Second test is that it's recorded and copied with extreme care. Now, what I find interesting is that God took the Jews and trusted the Jews to transcribe the Bible, which is pretty cool because the Jews had the reputation of being extremely accurate. The Jews were extremely accurate. In fact, when they transcribed the Bible, if they took the book of Genesis, they wouldn't just transcribe it word by word. They would go to the middle of the book, find the middle letter of the book, and then they would count both directions to make sure it was in the middle. And then they would begin to transcribe the Bible. And when they did, what they would do is once they finished writing, let's say they wrote the whole book of Genesis. Once they were finished, they would go all the way back and count every letter to that, that middle letter. And if they were off, scratch it all and start over again. That's how extreme and accurate the Jewish people were. In fact, if you remember, several years ago, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. How many of you remember hearing about that? They found the Dead Sea Scrolls. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and they began to examine them, guess what they found? Perfect. Perfectly transcribed. So the Bible passes the second test of being recorded and copied with extreme care. Then the third test is the archaeological confirmation. And, then, and they're still excavating parts of the world today that, that they believe the Bible is there. And some people are excavating and digging and trying to find things to prove the Bible wrong. <laughs> and what I love about the whole thing is that the more they find, the more the Bible gets right. Come on, somebody. I mean, just keep on digging. You're going to find something. And one day we, we're not going to have anything left to dig for. In fact, back in the early 1900s, there was uh, one aspect of the Bible that hadn't been proven yet by archaeologists, and it was about this nation called the Hittite people. And so in the 1900s, they, they discovered a, a site, and they began to dig, and they found records, and they found documents on the people called the Hittite people. And the Bible was then proven again to be accurate. Hang tight. 
completely accurate in the 1900s. And then so the second reason that the Bible can be trusted is it's scientifically accurate. Not only is it historically accurate, it's scientifically accurate. Now, the Bible's not a science book. By no means is it a science book. But the funny thing is that the God, that Bible gives you tons of information that, that can be proven scientifically. And for years, scientists have been trying to prove the Bible wrong. A lot of effort, money, time, and energy to prove it wrong. But the, once again, the more they dig, the more they find, and they end up proving the Bible right. And so it has to be scientifically accurate. Do you know science is still evolving? Science says the world's evolving, and science says that we're evolving. I don't know about them, but I ain't changed a whole lot in 40-something years. But science is actually evolving. You want me to prove it to you? Are they still using your third-grade science book? Why are they not using your third-grade science book anymore? Because it's changed. Truth stays the same. Science changes. Right? Psalms 145, 5-6 to says this. Let every created thing give praise to the Lord, for he issued his command. And they came into being. He set them in place forever and ever. His decree will never, watch this, never be revoked. The Bible's true. It's scientifically accurate. The Bible gives a lot of information. And you know what I find amazing about the Bible is what the Bible doesn't say sometimes. I think it's pretty cool that the Bible doesn't say some things sometimes. In fact, we used to think that the world was flat, right? How many of you remember Columbus? Columbus thought the world was flat until he started sailing it, right? And then he had a, an epiphany that the world was actually round. <laughs> okay, I was wrong. The world is round. If Columbus would have read his Bible, Columbus would have discovered that the world was round before he thought it was flat. Watch this in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. It says, God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. If he would have just read it. <laughs> the Bible never said the world was flat. Man came up with that. Why is that? Because God wrote the Bible, man didn't. What's, what's, what I find interesting is that word circle is where we get, is, is the Hebrew word for sphere. And that word sphere is where we get our word globe from. Which is pretty cool because way back in Isaiah's day, they were talking about a globe. Round, (laughs) y'all. It's round. (laughs) It's round. Here's another one for you. They used to believe that the earth had to be held up. The Greeks believed it was held up by Atlas, the Greek god. The Hindus believe that the earth, and this one's crazy, the earth stood up on the back of an elephant that stood up on the back of a sea turtle that sat up on the back of a serpent. That's what the Hindus believe. Now, that's just dumb because we all know the elephant squishes the turtle and together they squish the serpent. I don't even need the Bible for that. I mean, come on, somebody. Even the Egyptians, the great architects of our time, believed different things about the Bible that the Bible never said or about the world that the Bible never said. The Egyptians believed that the that the world was held up on five pillars. There was five massive pillars 
that the world was being held up by and that the world had to be held up. And what's crazy is, is that Moses, you remember the story of Moses as a baby put in a basket down the river, ends up at whose house? Pharaoh's house. Ends up at Pharaoh's house. They take him into his house. He becomes one of Pharaoh's kids. He gets all the Egyptian education a man can get, the best education. He gets this education that the world is standing on five pillars. Now, what's crazy is, is that Moses never mentions that in the first five books that he writes of the Bible. Why is that? Because it wasn't the Bible according to Moses. It was the Bible according to God. Making sense? Got a few more for you. There was a guy years ago that thought he could count the stars. By the way, the book of Job says this. He spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. How'd Job know that? He didn't know that. God told him that. Right? So then there was this guy that came along. He was going to count the stars. Come on, this one's really trippy. This guy's going to count the stars. His name was um, Hipparchus in 150 BC. He counted all the stars in the sky and he came up with a number. He said, there's 1,022 stars. And everybody thought he was a genius. 300 years later, this other guy comes across and says, I'm going to prove him wrong. He counts the stars and he proves him wrong. He says, I've discovered that this guy is wrong. There's not 1,022 stars. There's 1,024. Now, come on, somebody. You know you tried to count the stars before. I'd have messed up so many times, I'd have quit. I got past 10, it's over with, right? Come on, son. Well, if they would have just read their Bible, they could have saved themselves a whole lot of time because 2,600 years before that, in the book of Jeremiah, God says, the stars of the sky cannot be counted. The Bible will keep you from wasting time, somebody. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Let's move into the medical science. There was a guy named Hippocrates back in the day, and he, he came up with this term called uh, humoralism, and, and he believed that there was four major causes for sickness in the human body. Uh, yellow phlegm, black phlegm, I'm not, not phlegm, yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, and blood. He believed that if you had too much blood, you were going to be sick. So when you got sick, they would do this thing called bloodletting. They're going to get the junk out of you, so they would cut you, and drain the bad blood out. Now, how they found the bad blood, I don't know. But they would just drain the blood out because they thought you had too much blood. Do you know George Washington died from bloodletting? George Washington had heart issues. And the third time they cut him, watch this, he bled to death. Now, today we know that's different, right? Because today we actually give you blood. And we transfuse it. We substitute one for the other, Right? But if they would have just read their Bibles, Leviticus says, for the life of the body is in the blood. The Europeans could have been useful in reading their Bible because during the 
during the, the Black Plague, they lost thousands of people because they didn't understand contagions. They didn't understand how people could transfer diseases between one another. And so the Black Plague hits and thousands of people die. If they would have read their Bible in Leviticus, it says that the priest will quarantine the person for seven days. God was talking about quarantining long before people were really getting sick. You follow me? So when you read your Bible, it's in there. Hang on, Mike. Chill out. It's in there. If they would have just read their Bible. It's in there. God wrote it. Man didn't write it. Everything we need is found in it. Psalms 12, 6 says this, and the words of the Lord are flawless. And they're flawless. Like silver purified in a crucible. Like gold refined seven times. It's flawless. You got to understand something. This thing is flawless. How many of you have heard people say this statement? Well, man wrote the Bible. Come on, how many of you heard that? Oh, man wrote the Bible. Can't be trusted. Well, it's true. Over 40 different writers wrote this book. But God was the author. There was only one author. And he breathed the words into the writers and they put them on the page. It's flawless. If you want to prove it wrong, I'm going to tell you to go start living it and see if you can prove it wrong. I can't tell you how many people were converted that were atheists and agnostics and all this other thing. They were, they, they were converted just by trying to read this thing and prove the Bible wrong. And I just think that's funny because when they get to heaven, they're going to be like, that's the dude that tried to prove the Bible wrong. Third reason the Bible can be trusted is it's prophetically accurate. Now, what's crazy about prophecy is, is that if you're going to prove a Bible or if you're going to prove that a book, a book, not a book, a book is accurate, the last thing you want to put in there is something that's going to prove its accuracy in case it don't work. Like if you wanted to make sure the Bible was correct, you wouldn't put prophecy in it because prophecy has to be fulfilled. So if one prophecy is not fulfilled then the whole book is tainted. Are you seeing this? Do you know there's over 1,000 prophecies in the Bible? Over 300 just about Jesus. What's crazy is, is that the last prophecy that came out about Jesus, that after that prophecy, there was a period of 400 years where there was absolute silence, according to the Bible. And, and, and it was 400 years after that last prophecy about Jesus that Jesus was born. That would be like today getting Jesus would be born today, but back on the Mayflower, the prophecy came across. Does it make sense? You kind of relate to that a little bit. So the Bible's prophetically accurate. And you know what's crazy is the prophecies in the Bible aren't just these lofty little prophecies. The prophecies about Jesus said where he would be born, when he would be born, and what town he would live in. It even said that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. You want me to give you one that's really going to blow your mind? David prophesied that Jesus was going to be crucified. Not a big deal. Except for the fact that crucifixion didn't exist. Nobody knew anything about crucifixion in David's day. They weren't killing people those days. Those ways. In fact, crucifixions didn't start until the Romans came right before Jesus was born. How did David know that? 
How did he see that? Because God told him. Because God breathed it to him. Come on, somebody. It's from God. It's not from man. Is this making sense? It's not possible for one person to predict all these things and then they come true. Second Peter 1 says this, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. It didn't come from man. It came from God and Jesus trusted these scriptures. And in fact, in Matthew 26, 56, it says this, but Jesus was talking. He said, but this is all happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in the scriptures. You want to know what's crazy is Jesus trusted the scriptures, but the only scriptures he had was the Old Testament. Because <laughs> you've heard people say, I, I read the New Testament. I don't read the Old Testament. That's for back in the day. Let me tell you something. Jesus is just as much in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. Come on, somebody. If you read your Bible, you'll find Jesus in the Old Testament. Right? Jesus trusted the scriptures. (laughs) What's crazy is there's more prophecies to come. Revelations 22, 6 says, The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servant the things that must soon take place. (laughs) There's some things that are going to soon take place. And let me tell you something this morning. When those prophecies start to be fulfilled, you want to make sure you're on the right team, baby. Come on, somebody. You better make sure because Jesus comes back. You want to make sure you're on the right team. Right? You want to make sure you're on the right side of those prophecies because there's more to come. There's some prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet. And by the way, we're closer than ever. Theologians believe today that we're closer than ever, that Christ could possibly come back in our generation. How do they know? Because they're watching the prophecies. More prophecies are being fulfilled today than ever before collectively in in history. You know, I think it takes more faith to believe the Bible is not true. And it does to believe that it is true. Amen. So that was number three. It's prophetically accurate. Number four is thematically unified. There's one theme of the Bible. We talked about this last week. The theme of the Bible is who? It's Jesus. Jesus is the theme of the Bible. We're the object of the Bible, but Jesus is the theme. Jesus is from the first page to the last page. He's the theme of the Bible. And the Bible is thematically accurate. If it was one person writing the Bible, you would say, well, it's, it's pretty, pretty acceptable that it has one theme running all the way through it. But we talked about this last week, that it took 1,600 years to write the Bible. Wrap your head around that. 1,600 years, 12 different countries, three different continents, by 40 different people, Yet the theme is true from beginning to end. That's impossible with man, by the way. But it's not impossible for God. Right? Man wrote the words, but God breathed them into him. Is what happened. This is God's word. It's thematically correct. It 
has no contradiction. It does not contradict itself. Luke 24, 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself, talking about Jesus. Jesus has been in the Bible since the beginning. When we read our Bibles, we should look for Jesus in our Bibles. You should be able to find Jesus in your Bible. When you open it up, either you're in the Old Testament, the New Testament, or somewhere in between, when you read it, you should be looking for Jesus because when we read our Bibles, we find Jesus. We don't read it for head knowledge. We read it to understand Jesus better, to find Jesus. Amen? I heard of a great resource, and I wanted to share it with you. There was a lady named Henrietta Mears, and she served under Billy Graham for years. She was one of his intercessors, and she wrote a book called What the Bible is All About. You may want to get this book because it's pretty cool. She goes, she took the time, and before each book of the Bible, she actually gives you the cliff notes for that book. Come on, somebody, all, you, all my cliff note people. She gives you the cliff notes of that book. And not only that, she tells you where Jesus can be found in every book of the Bible. Pretty cool stuff. You can get it on Amazon for about 10 bucks. So that's number four. It's thematically correct. It's not contradicting itself. I'll never forget one time I thought I found a contradiction in the Bible. Can I just be a little vulnerable with you today? I, I was reading my Bible and I was like, I think I was in the Gospels, and I'd read one in, in, in Luke, maybe, and the other one in Mark, and I went, hold up. And my blood pressure started to rise a little bit. I thought I found something. And I was like, and I flipped back, flipped back, and I was like, and the Bible's contradicting itself. My like, God, this thing ain't true. It's contradicting. I got all worked up all by myself in my quiet time. And then after I studied it a little bit longer, I realized I was wrong. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. Number five, it's trusted by Jesus. If the Bible can be trusted today, it's because it was trusted by Jesus. He trusted it, every part of it. Jesus quoted it. That's how he fought against the enemy when he was being tempted, was with the word of God. It was his weapon. It's what he used. He trusted every part of it. Matthew 5.18 says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So watch this. This book is meant for the end. This book is meant to endure all the way to the end. No other book in history has been attacked like this book. But this book will not change. People have tried to change it, but it will not change. His word will not change. It will stand firm all the way to the end. Now, if that's true and this thing is going to last to the end, don't you think we ought to maybe anchor our life onto this? I mean, if this thing's going to get me all the way through revelations and into heaven, I might need to hang on. Give me a little cable, connect my life to it. If it goes, I'm going to. Right? We need to have that kind of an attitude when it comes to our Bible because it's the breathed word of God. It's the breath of God. Jesus trusted it. And listen, I understand what the struggle is. I've had that struggle before and sometimes it comes up again. Sometimes, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I struggle reading my Bible. I'll just be real. Sometimes I don't read certain books because I don't understand them. 
And a lot of people don't read their Bibles because they use this excuse. They say, I don't understand it. And my response always is, I don't understand digestion. But I keep eating. Hello. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that you don't keep feeding from it. Right? You got to dig into this thing. If you don't understand it, it should cause you to press in, not press out. Right? Jesus trusted it, then I can trust it. Heard a good quote. Thought I'd share it with you. Might step on your toes a little bit. If you believe what you like in the Bible, but don't believe what you don't like, it's not your Bible you trust, but yourself. Let me say it again. Some of you are like, nope, <laughs> I'm good. If you believe what you like in the Bible, but don't believe what you don't like, it's not your Bible you trust but yourself. Too many people walk away from this book because they don't like what it has to say. Let me warn you this morning. When you start to dig into this thing, it's going to tell you some things. It's going to tell you one of your favorite things. No. It's going to tell you no. And some of you can't handle that. Some of you can't handle being told no. But I want this. No. And then for the others, the Bible's going to tell you to go. <laughs> and some of you quit reading your Bible because it told you to go do something and you don't want to do it. You know, I'm putting this down because this thing's messing me up. <laughs> you know how many missionaries are sitting on their sofas? Because the word said go, and they said no. How many people are disgruntled with the Bible because it told them no? The Bible's going to tell you some things you don't like. It's going to tell you. Brings me to point number six. Sixth reason the Bible can be trusted is because it has survived all attacks. I wonder why the Bible was attacked in the first place. If this is the breath of God and it's here to give us life, why would somebody want to attack this? Well, number one, it's got a real enemy that's trying to attack it. And number two, we got real people with real flesh who don't want to do what it says, so they don't like it, so they try to destroy it, so they don't have to live by it. Amen? But it's been attacked. The Bible is the, is the most despised, derided, de- denied, disputed, dissected, debated, outlawed, and destroyed book ever. And it still endures. It's the greatest seller, <laughs> but it's also been under attack more than any other book. Why is that? Because there's something supernatural about this book. There's something that has an eternal purpose in this book. And there's an enemy that's trying to kill it and destroy it. And watch this. He's trying to keep you from reading it. He's trying to keep you out of it. He'll distract you. (laughs) He'll get your kids up in your business. You can't get away from your kids for nothing. Just to keep you out of this book. You know, the Bible's useful with your kids too, right? (laughs) Nobody has ever been able to stop God's word. First Peter chapter one says this, and I want you to read this out loud with me. Everybody read this out loud. The reason I'm saying out loud is because everybody read it out soft this morning in the first service. So let's read this together out loud. I don't want to have to do it twice. 
The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. How long? Forever. Forever. It takes us all the way to the end. You see, some of us today, some of you today are going to have to make a decision. You're going to have to make a tough decision today. Is this book going to have the final authority in your life or not? Who has the final authority in your life? When it comes down to the crossroad where your will is getting ready to be crossed by God's will, what has the final authority in your life? When you come to that point, do you go, well, I'm just going to go the way of the world? Or do you go, no, we're going to go the way of the word? What has the final authority in your life? You need to decide that. You need to determine that today so that your life can be anchored in this book. My wife and I, years ago, you've heard this story a thousand times, and I'm not even going to apologize for saying it a thousand times, but my oldest daughter, 17, when she was a baby, we both had good jobs, and we decided that it was best. We felt like God wanted for us for her to stay home and raise the kids, so she quit her job. So we were at a crossroads financially. On paper, it didn't make sense. Paper said no. The spirit inside of me said yes. So something had to happen. There was, we were at a crossroads. And so the crossroads was is that the word of God says that if you'll tithe and give offerings, the, the, in Malachi it says that God will open up the windows of heaven and pour out on you more than you contain. You can contain. So we had to make a decision that the Bible was going to be the final authority in our life. And so this is how we made our decision. Paper said no. Spirit said yes. The Bible said tithe. We built our life and made our decision on what the Bible said. We stepped out. And I said, the first thing we do with money that comes in is we tithe. We give back to God the 10% that he entrusted to us because we love him. And we did that 17 years ago. They're not calling me to be the Ethiopian poster child for a reason. God has been faithful. We're anchored in his word. You don't have to convince me to tithe anymore. You don't even have to teach me. I don't even need to hear a tithe message anymore. Because why? Because it's planted inside my heart. It's what my life is anchored to. That's just one aspect. It's anchored to that thing. Is this making sense? My life is built on it. It's a decision I don't have to make anymore. We don't get a paycheck and go, well, are we going to tithe this time or not? We haven't had that conversation in years. We don't get up in the morning on Sunday and go, you feel like going to church today? We don't make that decision no more. Well, yeah, you the pastor. You got to show up. No, I get some days off every now and then. I was doing this before I was the pastor. (laughs) God's word is the final authority. When you get into the crossroads of life, you got to know what you're going to stand on. You need to decide today when the crossroads come what you're going to stand on. Because when you get to the crossroads, that's not the time to make the decision. You make that decision now. And when the crossroads or the storms come, you've already made the decision. 
But too many Christians decide to, to, to do what they're going to do in the moment. What if we'll just decide ahead of time? We're living by God's word. We're doing what it says. Our life will be built on this word. That's it. Here come the storms. I've already got something to stand on. I'm not trying to pour concrete in the rain. Come on, somebody. Tornado coming. Oh, call the trucks. Get the concrete. We got to hurry up and lay a foundation. It's too late. It survived all attacks. And number seven, here's the seventh reason the Bible is true, is it has transforming power. This book has transforming power. It'll change your life. Can, can, I just, can I just press that into your heads this morning, maybe even to your heart? This thing will change your life. This book will change your life. But I want to explain how. Because too many times when we hear that, we think, well, I just need to go and read every day this book. And if I read it every day, then it'll transform my life. That's not necessarily true. That's a good place to start, but that's not necessarily true. Watch this, watch this verse in John chapter 8. Jesus said this. He said, if you hold, you need to underline that word hold, to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, here's the cool part about that verse. It's, it's a very conditional verse. Because Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings. Let me explain to you how I understand that verse. If you hold on to my teachings like your whole life depends on it, you will be my disciple. You see, it's not just holding on to it here. It's holding on to it here. There's a big difference between knowing God's word here and knowing it here. You see, there's things that you don't have to convince me of anymore. There's things that that I won't even argue with you about because I'm not going to waste my time. Because I know that I know that it's true. And nobody and no situation and no circumstance is going to change my mind because I know not here, here. It's an experiential knowledge, the kind of knowledge you gain when you walk through a fire with God, when you go through a crisis with God. It's the kind of experience that you gain that you can't find on paper. It's the kind that's just tangible. It's touchable. It's the kind of experience that makes this thing come alive. It comes alive. And when you come out of those situations, you stand with a new boldness. And you go, you know what? It doesn't matter what comes my way. My feet are planted on the word of God and I trust it. I trust it, not because I can quote it, but because I've lived it. That word no is not a knowledge word. It's an actual experiential word. It's the kind of thing where, I mean, even the youngest Christians can get this. Saved today and tomorrow morning, they're reading their Bible and they read something and they step out into an experience with God right there. Have that kind of knowledge about God that just, it's unchangeable, it's unmovable, it's unshakable. You know what's wrong with the church today? Is the church is too easily shaken. Christians are too easily turned upside down. I see it in our church. 
I see many folks, man, they, they come to Christ and they get passionate about him. And they're excited and they got all these dreams and visions of what God wants them to do. And then let the first crisis come along. Now they don't even know if they saved. It breaks my heart, man. I'm not mad. It just breaks my heart. Because I go, you know, we're all on the same team. We're all in the same family. We've all been adopted. I mean, we all, we share the same dinner table. Come on, somebody. I mean, this is my family the enemy's messing with. It hurts me when I see my brothers and sisters dying because they don't have anything to anchor to. It just hurts. Because I want to see people that I love the most anchored into something. That's going to last to the end. It can weather any storm. You might shake a little bit and it might get a little scary, but it's going to last to the end. You're not going to be like my little dog at the house. I got this great Pyrenees. He's the biggest, baddest dog in the neighborhood. As far as I'm concerned, he'll chase a coyote. Okay. But you let some thunder hit that brother turns into a wimp. I mean, he's under the house shaking and he's tripping out. And I'm like, dude, you can chase a coyote. I don't know if that made sense or not, but it just <laughs> popped in my head. But it has transforming power. I want to challenge you this morning. Give this book one year. Give it one year. One year. Be faithful to not just read it, but to chew on it. One year. And you come back to me and you tell me if it didn't change your life.